you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Liberal Soul. So on today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Cole Kander. Cole is a new friend in my life who I met through my cousins in Alberta. And the reason I wanted to talk to Cole is because he has a very similar pedigree or story to mine in that both he and I grew up in Protestant, mm, kind of not, I don't know about him in terms of quite evangelical or not, but uh, environments of um, Christianity. And as I find out in the conversation, we were born in the same year. So we kind of lost our religion in a similar way at a similar time of life. And I haven't met very many people like that in my travels. A lot of the people who I've met who don't believe in God weren't raised in a religious home and never really did. And most people I know who were raised in a religious home haven't quite let go of God in the same way that I have. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of, in a sense, compare notes of our intellectual lineage coming out of that. And it was a really awesome conversation. It was so much fun, lots of humor. Cole's a great guy. We talk about the background and where we grew up and and what kind of was the religious story there. And we talk about our intro with the new atheists, the importance to us and to some fundamental forms of Christianity, even empiricism which is why evolution was such a hot-button issue for me, was um, because of the truth claims of the Bible. Um, We talk about Jordan Peterson and some of our appreciations and criticisms of him. We talk about how people believe this stuff literally, where Christianity stands today, a little bit about bad actors and how they might gravitate towards where the power structures already lie. And also about having a a meaningful life without God. Additionally, there is some major spoilers for the movie Surrogates in this conversation. So if you don't want that movie spoiled, uh, just a heads up. Without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Cole Kander about losing our religion. All right, I'm here with Cole Kander on uh, the Liberal Soul podcast, and um, I'll have given you a kind of potted introduction this is a fun one i mean i was just thinking like i feel like i know you and i don't know you at the same time <laughs> yeah you know what I mean? we've hung out a bunch and you know obviously see each other on social media but i don't think we've had a conversation like this so it yeah. should, be, should be entertaining yeah so i i know you through my cousin david so any listener who's familiar with the other podcast really true fiction will have heard his voice lots and probably some on this podcast as well this conversation 
I don't even know what to call it. Like, I, I guess the joke would be in the style of REM, we're losing our religion <laughs> kind of thing. I was approached by a friend a couple months ago, I guess, when I was floating the idea of this podcast out. And she said to me, well, you should talk about your experience with Christianity and the church and all that. I think that'd be really interesting to people. I was like, well, I guess maybe that's true. I don't know. And then I kind of gleaned from Facebook that perhaps, Cole, you and I have a similar experience or childhood. I mean, and I think we're like around the same age. What year were you born? 87. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're born in the exact same year. So, and I mean, this topic aside, I always love talking to people from that, like even specific two or three year era around my life, because it's often like... We grew up on the same movies, the same books, the same music. So I really feel yeah. an easy connection. So, And also like the same start of getting information. I mean, the internet was just starting to come out. We were able to, I think one thing that helped me in this whole thing was that access to information and not just relying on, you know, what friends and family said. I can actually read up on different people's opinions. So. Oh, totally. And I, I guarantee I absolutely guarantee that um, YouTube will be a topic in today because that was a huge component of my thinking on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> this is an aside, but I feel so grateful. I jokingly and self-indulgently put it that um, people born in the 1980s are the last well-adjusted generation. <laughs> 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 because... Uh, so I was, are we just getting are we just getting old and like every generation is yeah. just worse off than we are? <laughs> yeah, we're falling into that trap that goes all the way back to Plato about complaining about the young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that notwithstanding, I do feel grateful that I was the age I was when, when the internet really did take off because I was eighteen when YouTube we like I guess we we were eighteen when YouTube came out. I was nineteen mm -hmm. before I got Facebook. And I was 20 when Twitter came out. So like, still young, but like not like teenager young where I, because I've worked with kids and youth for most of my life. And just like the weird dependence they have on social media and the way it really messes with their growing. I, I feel yeah. personally, I feel super grateful that I was, you know, five years before that. Exactly. Just imagine all the stupid things we would have said on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I feel like I have a lot of like specific questions, but probably the best way to start is why don't, and, and I can like include any of my own uh, relevant anecdotes, but why don't you give like a little background of what your life was like growing up in the nineties and your church life? <laughs> Sounds good. So, um, I was raised in a religious household, Protestant. Um, you know, it was church, Sunday school, Bible studies. My my mom would like host a Bible study at our house sometimes, or we'd go to other places, youth groups. I, you know, the whole nine yards. I even went to Bible college. I got kicked out. <laughs> and had... <laughs> wow. I feel like there's a story uh, there. Oh, it is. First, it's pretty simple one. First years weren't allowed to date, and uh, according to them, dating counted as sitting on opposite couches talking. And so I was like, no, I'm in love with this girl. You can kick me out. So they kicked me out. <laughs> I actually have a similar story. Not quite as drastic as that, but when I was 13, 
So I was at uh, Dutch Harbor Christian Camp. That was the, the camp I went every summer out on the lake here. And that was the first time I ever held a girl's hand. We held hands at the campfire. And my mom was the camp nurse. And she noticed. So we had to have a, a conversation the next day about purity and saving oh, yourself okay. for the right one. Anyway, this, <laughs> that's actually relevant, but sorry, continue. Yeah. So yeah, and I like stayed religious. So that that happened at like when I was about 20, 21, at around 21, I think I got kicked out. It was at that point I kind of got bored with religion. I'm not sure because like, you know, you go to youth group or you go to, at that point it was young adults group, right? Right. And you, get, you sit around in the circle and you discuss some Bible verse and some verse like, oh, this means this to me. And everyone would be like, yeah, it means that to me too. And that'd be the end of the discussion. It was like so, yeah, so shallow. Like there were, no one would ever question it. So I got bored of that. So I started playing literally devil's advocate and I would come and I'd be like, well, no, I disagree with that. And then they'd be like, well, no, it means this. And I'm like, yeah, okay. That makes sense that, you know, religion still must be true. And I, I had a friend and uh, his name's Patrick. And he was instrumental in, like, basically deconverting me because mm. he was atheist from young, like, I mean, teenage years and one of our friends. So I would talk with him over MSN Messenger and we'd have religious debates. And so what I'd heard at young adults, I'd tell him and he'd always have a more logical explanation that I could come up with. And I'd be like, OK, that makes sense. Religion must not be true. So then I'd go back to the young adults group and I'd be like, and that discussion would come up, I'd use his examples. And then they come back with something else until eventually his examples and my examples were winning these arguments at mm -hmm. young adults and they didn't have a good explanation. Like, oh, well, think and pray about it. It's like, well, that's not a good explanation. <laughs> so I started looking elsewhere, you know, because this is, you know, for those people who aren't religious or didn't grow up religious, it's not It's not just something you believe. It's not like, oh, I like the Oilers. They're pretty, they're yeah, pretty right. great. You know, I'm an Oilers fan. You know, I understand sometimes they're not very good. But it's no, it's like, I'm religious, and that's everything. That's who I am. That's my foundation. Like, you can't, like, if you change that, you change who I am. It doesn't, it's not just like what you do on Sunday mornings, right? Like, it influences the kind of people you invite to dinner. It influences the kind of books your parents let you read or the kind of movies that they let you watch. Or how you perceive the actions of others, too. Yeah. Yeah, like that like, that minuscule, that granular it gets down to. Yeah, everything revolves around it. So I actually got this book. Oh, nice. The God Delusion. Oh, yeah. By Richard Dawkins. And I, had, I think that actually, let's see, when was this actually published? I think it was published. It was uh, 2006. Yeah, 2006. So... I got it um, in 2008, apparently, because that's where this edition is. And I started reading it. Then I would use that book when discussing it young adults. And the conversations were just like, you know, they didn't really know how to handle it. And I was starting to really, really question things. Then when I was 23, so a few years after this, mm -hmm. I had a broken up with that girl that I got kicked out of Bible college with at this point. And <laughs> Did you ever get horrible. to sit on the same couch as her? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, we did for like two, two, three years after. So, you know. Oh, you might even have gotten um, a lazy boy. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, one day. But um, 
when I was 23, my mom came out as gay. Oh, okay. And so this is my super, you know, religious mom who's, right. you know, Protestant, and that's, and we kind of know, and that's, it's a long story, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we kind of guessed and whatnot. You know, she was well known in the church, well known in my our circles, social circles, and stuff like that. And I remember the last time I went to a young adults group, and it was right after my mom came out. And this was kind of a conversation that people were talking about because, you know, everyone knew her and stuff like that. So the pastor, he got up and he spoke and he spoke on the evils of being gay. And I remember this sentence and I was like, that's it. I'm done with this with this group. He said that if you leave or abandon God, God will make you gay as a punishment. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't swear at that time, so I didn't say that word. Probably more like, what the frig? Sure. But, <laughs> you know, and I was just like, that is total bullshit. My mom is the most loving, caring That's, person. You know what? I've never even heard it put that terribly before. And I've heard it be put terribly uh, about gay people, like most of the condemnation I've heard around homosexuality from the church was like, it's like a sin. So it's something included in the kind of awfulness of being human. And it might even have its own particular flavor of awfulness, but you are still able to be redeemed because sin is overcomable in the theology of uh, like if you cast yourself at the foot of Jesus kind of thing, even there isn't any sin that you can't be forgiven from. But this sounds like the way that this pastor phrased it, it's even beyond a sin where it's like actually, it's almost equivalent to hell, right? Like hell is being gay. <laughs> I, I've never heard it said like that before. You know, yeah, I've heard what you, what, you know, the way you describe it many, many, many times. It was definitely shocking, you know, my mom had apparently known since she was very young, but got married to, right. you know, fix it kind of back in the, you know, 60s, 70s or whatever that year was. And and so, you know, I, I knew that that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. I knew that, you know, she was as devout of a, of a Christian person that you can possibly be and that that is a total lie. Right. And uh, so that was the last time I ever went to young adults. Except a few years later, I went back just to argue, but that's another story. <laughs> so, so this is like this is not just an intellectual thing for you. This sounds like a personal thing too. Yeah, and that I think it started off as an intellectual thing, and that made it kind of personal. Mm-hmm. And after that point, I became one of those those angry atheists that oh, yeah. you see on Facebook that are just like. You know, it's just, I'm sure if social media was bigger back then, I probably would have been even worse, but... The big A logo. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. It would have been so cringy. Um, (laughs) And then the final severance of my religion was uh, I actually went back, I backpacked Europe for three months. Mm. I actually brought, I think it was... Yeah, I think I, I was still, at that point, still reading The God Delusion. I brought it with me, right. and I was, like, my only reading. I'm, and I'm meeting all these people at hostels, and, like, they're not religious, but they're great people, and they have great ideas and, you know, great philosophical ideas on the world and life. And I'm just like, wow, there's this is, like, my first time meeting non-religious people that are not, you know, 
evil sinners. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it really changed my opinion of what I've been told my whole life. And then I remember I'm sitting on this hill and I'm waiting to go see this, this falconry um, event or something like that, this tourist attraction. And I said, you know, like, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm no longer religious. I'm going to, you know, give it a, I'm going to actually give it a shot. I'm just going to not, I'm not going to pray anymore. Right. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm like abandoning it. We're going to see how bad my life gets. Sure. So yeah, a lot happened in that, in that year. And my life has <laughs> gone better since then. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I hear several parallels to my own youth in your stories. I definitely like was also in a Protestant and actually, so like, interestingly, I, I would never have been able to think about this at the time, but retrospectively, I trace my first doubt back to being six years old. Uh, of course, when I'm six, I don't think about it this way, but I definitely remember the impulse that I would now interpret as this doubt. Cause until I was six, my family, we went to a Presbyterian church and Presbyterian is Protestant, but it's like a little more austere and a little bit more serious and a little bit more kind of ritualistic than you might think of Protestant or evangelical kind of thing. So when I was six, my parents, along with some other people in the town, started a new church called the Bridge Christian Community. And oh, yeah. so we had to leave the Presbyterian church. And at the time, being a kid, I was just angry because it was like moving away from my friends. Right? Like all my friends went to this church and they were the people I played Superman and Ninja Turtles with. So <laughs> that was like my whole world. And and I remember thinking, and I couldn't do anything with this, but even at age six, I was thinking like, well, if God is everywhere, why do we have to switch churches? That doesn't make any <laughs> sense, right? Like if God, <laughs> and like that, that question actually permeates down, like it cascades into all of my other doubts and suspicions and skepticisms but like i just i remember even as a kid like six seven eight nine just overhearing arguments and pretty heated arguments between adults in the church about different ways to be a christian how the right way to be a christian is well this passage says you have to do it this way well this passage if interpreted says you have to do it this way and here am i like this kid thinking like well all I really know about this is that the songs are kind of fun. Sunday mornings, I get to see my friends. And if I put up with this kind of hour-long sermon, I can actually go play with them after. So it's a relatively good deal for me. But I... And don't forget the food and the snacks sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, sometimes the coffee ladies are nice and sometimes they're real mean. And you just don't know. You got you to gotta hope you get the good coffee lady <laughs> with the snacks. These little minutiae of the church life. So I grew up going to the this church, The Bridge, and it's where like most of my friends went. And I was homeschooled, um, like like David, my cousin, and, and, and their family. Same. Yeah. Were you homeschooled the whole way? Grade 4 to 12. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was homeschooled kindergarten to grade 10. So I went to high school for grade 11 and 12. Lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty fun. I was definitely what I would have called a dyed-in-the-wool Christian when I was growing up, like I, I was um, the whole nine yards. I remember, and this will be relevant for something I want to bring up later. Do you remember this guy named Kent Hovind? Did you ever watch any of his videos? 
Sounds familiar. He was a he was a creationist high school science teacher who made these videos, basically quote unquote debunking evolution and giving a biblical or a creationist explanation for the science behind the Bible kind of thing, right? I'm sure if he was popular, I probably had read something of his. Yeah, I mean, the videotape I remember the most of his was called 100 Reasons Why Evolution is Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing was, and I think this was a bit, I think this miffed my parents a little bit, but I was glued to these videotapes. And and now I'm old enough to realize, well, it's because I'm a very empirically-minded person. And so... I kind of assumed and garnered that the legitimacy of the Christian doctrine was the fact that it literally happened. So Adam and Eve existed in the same way that the Berlin Wall existed, right? Or that resurrection from the dead was just as existent a fact as, I don't know, electromagnetism or something like that, right? Like there was no... There was no demarcation in my education between the science, quote unquote, of the Bible or the empirical claims or even the historical claims of the Bible and the theological or metaphysical aspects of it, right? Like the reason why salvation is a legitimate metaphysical category in Christianity is because 2000 years ago, Jesus existed and died on the cross and we know about it through the gospels. That's kind of thing. Like there was a causal, a causal connection between the historical facts in the Bible and the theology that now was why we were here kind of thing. Yeah. So that's why the evolution stuck in my cross so hard is because, well, this delegitimizes the claims of the Bible and makes them obsolete. And if this part over here is incorrect, why take seriously all these other parts? You know, this is... And I think, you know, when you're a kid, you grow up thinking that everyone thinks like you, right? Like, you can't help but think yep. that, well, Christianity is this 2,000-year-old religion that everyone around me believes, and they take seriously, and they're adults. And since I take seriously the empirical truth of the nature of reality, that must mean everybody else does. So that means Christianity has been established. And so all of these evolutionists or (laughs) sinners or people of the world or of the flesh as they were sometimes called they're just trying to take it down because that's what they're supposed to do because satan is in their hearts like there's an answer for everything right exactly (laughs) this is a bit long-winded but i i really feel the way you talked about how when you went on that backpacking trip you met all these people who were good people who were maybe atheistic or a different religion or um, had philosophical differences because that was university for me. When I first went, I went to the University of Calgary, which was the first time I lived in Alberta. And two things, two major things, one relational and one intellectual that happened to me. The intellectual one was I would start to go, because I was in um, my first I switched degrees to sociology because it's a little easier. Don't tell. Uh, But my original program was natural sciences. So I was taking biology and geology. And so, of course, when you're taking those kind of courses, the the professors, they just talk about ages of the earth kind of flippantly, like taken for granted. And every now and again, they would talk about Christianity or they'd talk about religion because there would be some question or some interpretation. But they didn't... um, They talked about religion in a way I'd never heard an authority figure talk about it before. It wasn't 
it wasn't derisive and it wasn't exemplary either. It wasn't like praising or criticizing it. It was just noting it as a fact as we pass by. Like right. wasn't giving it any sort of valence one way or the other. And I'd never heard that. I'd only ever heard religion talked about in glowing terms or someone hating it, right? right. I'd, I'd never heard this third category of dispassionate observation. And I was like, wow, that might free up some other forms of inquiry if you're not getting hung up on the emotionality one way or the other of your belief. Yeah. And so that was the intellectual point. And then the relational one, which I related to your point, was I just made so many friends in residence, because I lived in residence for a number of years, who didn't believe in God, didn't have or had been also in a church. And these were like super good people who were really kind. And just I was like, hmm, well, there's a disconnect here between what I'm starting to learn through my science classes and what I've been told people who don't believe in God are like, even if they like in yeah. their hearts. Right. Exactly. And, and this was all around the time. I don't know. Do you ever, do you remember the film religious Bill Maher? Did you ever see yes. that one? Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I know. I remember that. So that was 2008. And I think this might be a good segue into, cause you've already brought up Dawkins I think that my quote-unquote uh, militant <laughs> phase, which I don't think lasted very long and was more directed at my parents for probably deeper reasons, was I spent probably a good three years, like 2009 to 2012, glued to YouTube watching Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris debates. Oh, <laughs> Did yes. you do that? Watched all the Christopher Hitchens debates and like, oh man, yeah, so good. He's still. I mean, I, I, I so fell in love with Hitchens. My bookshelf is right here. I've got like, I don't even just have his main books. Like, I've got like his books that he wrote in the eighties. Oh wow! <laughs> right, like I've got like Blood Class and Empire and The Trial of Henry Kissinger and like his his like stuff that nobody's read probably for at least twenty years. I was overwhelmed with him specifically his approach and his style and maybe like just to set the context for people who didn't live through this era like 2000 between 2004 and 2007 there were these four books written end of faith by sam harris breaking the spell by daniel dennett god delusion by dawkins richard dawkins and then god is not great by hitchens which you seem to have on your shelf right there <laughs> yeah i got him up here too and yeah. then they in in 2007 they had the four horsemen conversation in hitchens apartment those those four guys but more specifically over the long term those two hitchens and harris over the long term were like the term I use is they were Prometheans for me. They gave me like the best versions of the arguments against Christianity, because that was what I knew best, yep. also other religions, but those ones. So yeah, what was your, I mean, I have the end of faith and all of these on my shelf here too. What was your, how, yeah, did, like, how did those guys change your perceptions? Well, actually, so my desktop background has been for the last like almost 10 years, a quote from Christopher Hitchens. And it says, take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Uh, yeah. You know, Dawkins' book started it, but Hitchens, like, really, yeah, his debates and his way of breaking it down, like, his constant use of Occam's razor and 
and the fact that he spent so much of his life what, what's the word when it when uh, when a saint in the catholic faith is going or when someone is going to become a saint they have mm. to you know perform a miracle after their death and then but they need a skeptic to come in right. and play devil's advocate yeah yeah and Hitchens was that person yeah literally yeah and just his talk of you know constantly debunking all these these things he's such a great orator it's tough to really pinpoint like what it's just because i you know like like you i probably listened to tens and dozens and dozens of hours of his of all of his debates it didn't matter which one it was you know they start to repeat each other because there is only so much you can say about religion there there's the same few arguments yeah and it's yeah it, it definitely definitely helped he like <laughs> Christopher Hitchens specifically, he married a kind of style of speaking with an unparalleled substance of content as well. Like, he was a kind of freak of nature. He could just stay up all night and drink all night and still, like, maintain every iota of the argument. And he was so researched. I could really tell when I read God is Not Great and heard his, like, lectures on the book that this was kind of a book he'd been writing his whole life. And I think he's even mentioned that a couple times. Like, just basically his his worldview was leading up to this for his whole professional career. But I was so taken in. Obviously, Dawkins and Dennett were factually impressive. And Harris has some humor to him, too, which I, I want to talk about him in a bit. But Hitchens was just, he was able to quote, dickens and socrates and then also like a popular movie of the day you know like he just had yeah. this breadth of um experience and knowledge you know, yeah and and then bringing it all to bear against and, and in the debate specifically he was talking to preachers or theologians that were recognizable to me like i i had come across these um religious authorities throughout my life and it was amazing to see. It felt like the first time I'd ever seen this type of person challenged by a worthy adversary because, and this is something I think worth bringing up about Christianity specifically, probably other religions and probably other any dogmatic belief ideology or system, but there's like a way it manages to hermetically seal itself from criticism. You alluded to it a few times. I have noticed this tendency in, let's say at least liberal 21st century evangelical culture where the energy of a testimony or a point is its authenticity. So if you say something really passionately or you say something like the test, the idea of the testimony being kind of sacrosanct, you said in your young adults, like sometimes you'd ask questions, you'd pick apart, like the detail of that point you just made didn't quite add up. My dad has this tongue-in-cheek little quote he says sometimes is like never let the facts get in the way of a good story (laughs) and that could be a total meditation on that element of the way christianity talks about itself i guess and what counts as evidence for god right like evidence for so many people counts as how strongly you feel god's presence versus manifest in the world in any kind of realistic sense did your church do this as well? Like, you know, they taught us to critically think about other religions and how they're wrong. Did you ever have like a youth group or young adult where they like went over 
Mormonism or Scientology or something like that, and showed us all the things that were wrong with that and why they're wrong and we're right. Did you ever have that at church? Like a little bit Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I think probably because those ones were offshoots of Christianity, so they like were yeah. a little bit more closer to home. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's interesting to think like you know you go through all that these people are going through all this critical thinking about why another religion is wrong, but refuse to put any of that to their own religion. And I think one thing we haven't actually brought up is some. I mean, we've we've talked about our experiences and how we got there, but. Mm. Uh, we haven't talked about any like examples of, you know, flaws in the religion that kind right. of led. Yeah. <laughs> we I just mean, assume the listener knows what we mean. <laughs> yeah, and I think I like to bring up a few examples because I I know people when I talk about this are like, oh, well, you just had these feelings and you need to be it's like, well, no, here's some examples of like why it didn't break down, and it, you know, some of those examples of were taken from the church teaching me how these other religions were bad. And uh, I remember talking to a friend and it's like, oh, well, you know, our, my church isn't a cult. I mean, cults do like human sacrifices and stuff. And he's like, well, God asked for human sacrifices in the Bible. Right. I was yeah. like, what? No, he didn't. And I was like, yeah, he did. Like, what do you, what do you think Jesus was? <laughs> well, no, there's even, not even, not even Jesus. Um, when, uh, who was the guy who he came back from from a victory and he said, you know, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out to greet me? What oh, story right. was it? Yeah, I do remember this story, but I don't remember the name. Like he made a promise to God kind of thing. Yeah, and the first thing that comes out to greet him is his daughter. Right. And and then it kind of is like, wait, so God knows everything. So if we promise something, he knows what's going to happen. He's in control of everything. So either he let that person make the promise knowing that he'd have to sacrifice his daughter or he didn't know and then didn't stop it right either way with like no matter how you break it down this person sacrificed their daughter to god yeah. and it's like okay well i guess i can't use that argument against cults you know that ours isn't a cult you know i don't know why god asked for a human sacrifice of a daughter that didn't do anything bad yeah. but you know we'll just abandon that for a bit you know maybe we'll come back to something else it's for the greater good cole it's for the greater good yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and of course we mentioned evolution before too and that really drills a big hole in the whole christianity because you know everything is surrounded by original sin yeah and original sin is based on man eating the fruit from the tree of good knowledge of good and evil and right. and so everyone after that was was cursed you know with with sin but if adam wasn't the first person because evolution is true and you know there was someone before adam and uh, you know something 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 and there actually you know? was no first person <laughs> right i'm so actually just reading it's it's good timing. I'm reading Dawkins' book, The Greatest Show on Earth, right now, which is his book on the evidence for evolution. And the point he makes is that yeah. our categories are an outcome of our psychology, but they don't necessarily map one to one on the way the reality is, right? So if you take humans all the way back to generations, at no point can you say this is the first human with any yeah. sort of biological rigor. It's just kind of a convention through our taxonomy, basically. Exactly. And so if, if, like, Adam wasn't the first person, so then, you know, you talk to some people, they're like, oh, well, it's just a story. 
you know, it didn't actually happen. It's just a, you know, a moral story of how this, how sin kind of came in and, you know, there maybe wasn't a, a first person and stuff like, well then, well, if we're not all from Adam, you know, and let's say that someone happened to that, you know, well, how does everyone have that sin? And it just kind of breaks down because if that, if original sin doesn't exist, then what did Jesus die for? Yeah, right. Because Jesus died to remove original sin for us as to be that sacrifice that we can put our sin on and get into heaven. But if original sin didn't exist, because Adam didn't exist, because the apple didn't wasn't eaten and original sin, then it's like, well, then nothing of it, nothing of it matters. Yeah, yeah. It's a, then, it's a story. Yeah. Right? It's not a textbook. It's a story. This is actually, I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but this is, you've actually just already organically referenced my biggest criticism. I mean, to the, who am I? Who cares what my criticism of Jordan Peterson is? But here it is nonetheless, because <laughs> I've actually been fascinated by a lot of Peterson's talks on the Bible. I'll tell you, Peterson talking about the Old Testament from a psychological point of view is way more interesting and captivating to me than I ever was in Sunday school. So, oh, yeah. No, religion was taught like Peterson taught about how they still be Christian because exactly. it's way more logical. It's um, not based on... Yeah. <laughs> and I, my thought is, and I don't think he'd necessarily disagree with this. I think it might be just a difference of emphasis than of acknowledgement. But Peterson is a little bit too sanguine for me or hand wavy about the way that the metaphors, quote unquote, are talked about in Christian culture and churches and parents to kids and pastors to congregation and like the way it's kind of done internally there's a potential assumption in the way peterson talks about it where everyone knows this isn't literal who even thought it did and i was like okay i don't think you have spent nearly enough time with these people right where it was never preached as a metaphor to me it was never preached as a story And, and um it was always preached as here's what happened here's what is to be believed here. If you don't believe it, there here's hell. So I always say with Christianity, it's just, it's like the smartest thing. If you can't get them through the front door of love, you can always get them through the back door of fear. And (laughs) so hell, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was so scared for one of my friends. I gave him a book called a divine revelation of hell. And it was written by someone who had a near death experience and quote unquote, went to hell and then wrote about it. Wow, too easy now, hey? (laughs) Anyway, I just think that Jordan Peterson, he kind of has this assumption of like, well, everyone knows that that's a crazy way to think about it. And I'm not even going to waste my time. And like, fair, like, no scholar has to is indebted to the culture of what specific element to study of a phenomenon. And that's fine. But I think that that's kind of his blind spot. And you I don't know how closely you followed his his lectures and stuff. But this is actually the thing that believers get on his case about too, actually, is that uh, he's, um, what would be the right term? He's too, I guess, still hand wavy in the other direction of, well, is God real or not? And then, you know, he gets into, well, what do you mean by real kind of thing? And fair enough, like there's interesting discussions to be made there between empirical reality and psychological reality and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Dan Dennett talks a little bit about that too in in his work, mm-hmm. Belief in Belief. I don't want to quibble with that, but I I find I find it an insufficient analysis of 
Christianity, at least at the social level of what he talks about, where it is like, okay, preachers, you know, and especially so many of these liberal preachers, they come out to the broader public and they say, yeah, you know, these are metaphors or yeah, evolution is true. But like, what are they saying to the kids behind closed doors kind of thing? Yeah. Just because I... I mean, maybe it's a little different now, but growing up, I mean, we were kids in the 90s. Like, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't a, like, take it or leave it. Yeah, well, like, my family who is still religious, like, not a single one of them will be like, oh, yeah, no, it's not real. It's just a metaphor. Like, not a single one of them would would say that. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, like, you know, like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not even, not even close. So, like, you know, I think that Peterson, you know, if people want to cling to religion and need a logical or philosophical reason to believe in it, mm. I think he, he gives that to people um, because there is so much information out there that, that you know, if you really take a chance to look at it, yeah. it will, you know, you, you can't logically align yourself with it. Right. And so he gives an out or a way to believe in it as a philosophical and a way of life kind of thing. And I think that's, that's a, it's a very unique perspective on it. And I haven't really heard of people talk about that in a way other than him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's going to, it's going to change people's thoughts, but I have a, I have a friend who's reading it, he's religious and he's reading it in a Bible study and he doesn't like it at all because it is challenging his, because he believes it's true. Right. Or it's a book study with uh, with religious people kind of things, and and uh, he doesn't like it at all because it's not what he believes, and he believes that Peterson is wrong. He doesn't doesn't know why. Yeah, I feel like um, probably people like you and me. There's something quite attractive, and especially given my other podcast where I talk about movies and books, there's something quite attractive of like thinking about Cain and Abel or Moses, or, you know, all the stories in Genesis, like he talks about in a similar way as I think about like Harry Potter, or Luke Skywalker, or even like a Dostoevsky novel, I am so on board with that form of talking about the Bible stories, because I think I would say the the literary or the metaphorical elements to these stories are so much more important than any specific fact that you could find in them, like in a history textbook or something like that. Um, well, and so much of our world is like you you read classical literature and you miss uh, like my wife she took um, she wasn't raised religious and but she took English in university right and she didn't get a lot of these references in English literature because you know all of the classics is based around Bible stories or yeah. referencing them and like if you don't know the Bible stories you would never know that it's based on a Bible story yeah I think it's important to actually learn. Not about just Christianity, but all different types of religions so you can understand where people are coming from. You can see references. You can relate to people and what it should end at. (laughs) Never even mind, like, literature or or high-minded thinking. Like, I don't know if you ever played Halo, the video game. Oh, yeah. But Halo is just littered with Christian iconography and references, right? Like, the alien race is the covenant. Um, (laughs) They're going on to their glorious salvation. 
the yeah. reclaimer the the like it's just it's the arc the arc is where all the hate like halo itself like it's just there's yeah. so much you can't escape these stories that have been let's say selected for over the the centuries and millennia because in a similar way of like natural selection like the stories from ancient times that are still here are the ones that survived right they're the ones that got copied down because presumably they're the ones that impact people and get in under their yeah, well, Peterson talks about that, and he talks, you know, these we relate to these stories because they talk about, you know, human suffering or human um, accomplishment or, you know, the, the 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 best parts of humans and the worst parts of humans. And yeah. yeah, Star Wars is based on, you know, you can yeah, make yeah, relations. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, anyone who's ever listened to me on any podcast will know my Star Wars opinions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, so I think that's why they... They stick around for sure, and it's it takes. But when you've been raised to believe that they're true, mm-hmm. and then you hear someone like Jordan Peterson who's like, "Well, no, they're not really true, but they're good stories." You're like, "Well, I agree that they're good stories, but they're true." Okay, I guess I have two criticisms of Peterson because <laughs> he even still gives himself an out from that angle. He says. I'm not going to talk about the metaphysics of Jesus or Christianity, though I don't say it's not possible, right? Like he's kind of like the agnostic get out of jail free card that is often played at the kind of pinnacle of these arguments. There's like, I'm going to talk about the psychology of the Bible, though that isn't necessarily exhaustive of it kind of thing. It's like leaves it. Okay. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, I've, I especially after watching Hitchens and stuff, I like love to debate people. Oh yeah, and it's tough to debate them because it gets too emotional for people, right? But that is one of the things I think Peterson has to do. Like he can't engage on another level because he knows he'll he it's not defendable, right? And so you know he maybe he doesn't want to talk about that. Who knows? You know we can speculate all we want, but it's probably the most sound thing to be like, you know what? It's not defendable. I'm not going to talk about that part. You can talk to other people about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's you and I are in a probably uniquely advantageous position to understand why he might be unrelatable or difficult for, you know, true believers. <laughs> because yeah. I think in the broader culture, they see him as a Christian apologist. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, I think the broader secular culture and maybe a more leftist one would see him as like apologizing for Christianity in the more classic sense of like making a defense of it. And the yeah. irony, of course, that you and I can see is that he's kind of passively undermining the core of what belief in and propositional belief in a deity really boils down to <laughs> you know exactly. there's kind of a bad conscience here. I mean, there's obviously a ton of bad conscience in in religion and Christianity, but the bad conscience that is in this specific case is what kind of was motivating me as a teenager when I would talk about, like, I needed, like, there were, there were adults, when I was a teenager, there were adults in my life who said, why do you care so much about this Kanthoven guy? Why do you care so much about evolution? Why do you care so much about disproving Darwin, let's say? And I was like, well, because if this part isn't true, everything else collapses. It's a house of cards, like, or, or a, scaffolding even this is the base of the scaffold and it doesn't matter how high up the scaffold goes if you take out the first layer the whole thing's coming down and then 
later in my life, I've been introduced to this idea from Dennett called the sky hook, right? The the thing in the sky oh, yeah. Yeah. that your things just hang from. Well, this actually does solve the scaffold problem, right? Because yeah. if your scaffold is hiding from a sky hook, which who knows what that's hanging on to, you can yeah. get rid of the base of the scaffold and it'll still just hang up there in the sky. So anyway, like all these adults were thinking I was probably focused on the wrong thing because to, to, to them, Christianity is their community, the people that they know. It influences their relationships. It's much more like a social ethic type of thing. But mm-hmm. for young people, I think, because it's like empiricism comes quite naturally to young people and a, a subset of people as they age who don't lose that kind of scientific worldview or paradigm or or questioning it's not good enough right it's just it doesn't meet the standard of a thinking person if yeah. you ask these very basic questions like well how is god three people and one person and one of them is a human and two of them aren't right yeah. like the the logical inconsistency of even the trinity is a me- it makes a mess of language and for me personally that I'm a huge fan of George Orwell and his and his uh, essay Politics in the English Language and the mess you can get into if you're inexact in your verbiage, right? And and this is where that Christianity warmth, energy, passion, emotion of the testimony comes in, right? And the interesting thing is when those types of, you know, tiny as what they would call tiny inaccuracies or you know stuff it's just like, well you got to read you got to understand it in a whole context. Devil's in the details. Yeah, so ignore the details. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one of the episodes David and I did on Really True Fiction, we did the play The Crucible by Arthur Miller. It was written in the 50s, and it was a dramatic retelling of the Salem witch trials. But the like the allegory at the time was for um, what Arthur Miller considered the McCarthy kind of communist witch trials that were going on in the U.S. culture at the time. And what was, you know, so indicative of the crucible is that the only evidence necessary to convict someone of being a witch was the testimony of a witness, right? So yeah. that that whole, and, and, and it's like the broader themes of the crucible are mob thinking and how an idea gets out of hand. If you even let like the first or second or third absurdity in, if you don't oppose it at the beginning, how it snowballs and gets so bad. Or cancel culture these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that there's like, I, I think the crucible is a super relevant piece of literature for now for the philosophy of not letting of, of telling the emperor has no clothes early in his parade and not late. Because by then yeah. you've sacrificed too much of your soul kind of thing. Anyway, yeah, I would say my early and mid-20s were quite... I still had a lot of energy to be, I guess, abusive of religion and derisive. And I've kind of lost some of that energy. And Here's a question for you and something that I've kind of just recently come to terms with. is, And I'll answer this after if you want, but like why... Do you care if people believe, or do you care if people believe these days? I care less. And I think the major reason for that is because I would say, like, my university in early 20s, I read a ton of philosophy, which makes religion seem beyond stupid. But in my late 20s, early 30s, the majority of my reading has been about psychology and how the mind works and I feel like I've gathered a lot of sympathy for 
almost all of the religious people I've known in my life when I learned more about how the brain works and its biases and how like scientific thinking doesn't come naturally to humanity. It's a real, it's actually like quite a difficult tool to wield well. And that probably in a historical sense, particular religious beliefs uh, aided survival for certain groups and allowed you to expand things like trade and commerce because it adds an element of trust. So there's like a whole social element to it as well. I want to get your thoughts on this as you answer your own question. One of the things that Sam Harris always talked about that really stuck with me was how religion is basically a useless word because it covers too much ground. It's like a word like sports that involves, I think he's used badminton and uh, Muay Thai boxing, which basically have nothing yeah. in common, right? And again, like to me, language is such an important precision in verbiage is so important when you're talking about things that cash out philosophically or scientifically. And so I actually divide religion into four things now, at least four, like I think there can be more. And so two of the things I think are absolute bullshit and need to be jettisoned. And two of them are interesting and maybe worth keeping around and letting them evolve into something else. And those are the empirical claims of religion, which I think are just false. And so, you know, we have better mm -hmm. explanations for things. Uh, the metaphysical claims of religion, which I think are incoherent and nonsensical and often evil <laughs> and ask you to do yep. evil things. So those are the two really negative things that I think I will never get tired of arguing against or debating against. But the two more interesting things to me are like the social and ethical elements. I think conceiving of Jesus as moral philosopher is much more interesting than conceiving of him as son of God. So I think that there's lots to be talked about. I mean, one of my favorite writers is Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he is exemplifying in his writing a lot of what I call the social ethic of God without the necessary, like, belief or science or whatever. Like he, and he was kind of considered a, a heretic even in his time, even though he wrote about God because of the way that he said, well, God is kind of like nature or he's kind of like how I relate to my friends, that kind of stuff. So I think that there's okay. something interesting in the social ethical there as well as Peterson in the psychological. I've often said to David, if you want to call the pinnacle of a psychological attachment to something metaphysics, I don't see a difference. <laughs> yeah. And other than psychology is more or less explainable through the natural world. So that's a really long-winded answer to your question. But I, I, I think of it almost in four different categories now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and just to jump off something that you said, you know, it's, I think Hitchens has said it's like it was religion was our first attempt at like medicine and, yeah. and uh, you know, regulating a society and stuff like that. And, you know, it had its merits back then. It did, you know, make, you know, just like don't eat pork because it wasn't as sanitary. It yeah. wasn't that evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like, you know, if it's not cooked right, even today, you know, even if you're pregnant, apparently, my wife is pregnant at this point, and all the deli meat you oh, can't congratulations. eat. congratulations. Like, yeah, thanks. And it's, you know, so, you know, it's our first attempt at, at medicine in some ways and philosophy. But for me, you know, because I've always been like, oh, I got to, you know, convince my, my parents and my brother that it doesn't exist because life will be better for them or, you know, or I don't even know why, actually, at some point. So it was just like, I just had to do this. And I've come to the point where it's like, as long as they're not hurting themselves, or hurting others, like, what does it matter if you believe in God or Buddha or whatever? Like, it doesn't... Or Zenu. Yeah, or anything. It's like, 
you are happy, you found a group of people that you relate with, you have this community, this friends that you can be with, you come together because you believe in something that I don't believe in, but it's not like it's, you're not harming. Yeah, you lose 10% of your income every year, but you know, you like you said, increasing trade. My family's gotten lots of, uh, they're realtors, and so you know, lots of people from the church, they've gotten business deals from that over yeah. the decades. And it's like, I don't see any harm in it, so I don't see the reason to try and debate it or anything and it's that's kind of where i've come to it's like do whatever you want totally i i also maybe this is a sociological point i think it is i also just see christianity specifically in canada in 2021 as just not having the cultural hegemony it used to have so it doesn't have the power that it used to have to influence institutions or even individuals like obviously children are all their own category in terms of indoctrination and and all that kind of stuff but even compared to the 90s when I grew up one of my all-time favorite tv shows is South Park and I think South Park is an amazing kind of cultural barometer because it's been on the air since 97 so if you go back to the early seasons to see what it was lambasting or who was giving it a hard time it was basically all conservative groups it was like evangelical conservative christians were the ones who were interested in censoring south park which is why their most outrageous episodes early on were about the catholic church or about like having a gay character was like a was like a oh my gosh what a transgressive show they have a big gay owl they had a gay dog right like they just that was the that was the censorship that was the power cultural power group in the 90s even and as opposed to now you can watch episodes where they they mostly get shit on by left-wing groups and by progressives <laughs> because that's kind of where the cultural hegemony is now right so yeah. i think it's also partly contingent for me on um who i think is calling the shots and is swinging the biggest dick around in terms of like controlling what other people get to ingest through art television movies that kind of thing and yeah. so if if it was still evangelical christian groups that kind of had that sway in our culture i think i'd be a little bit more vocal still and a little bit more like tackling that mountain or that problem right whereas the modern censorship to me seems to come much more from i hate to use the word woke because it's too simple again like it's a word that would cover too much ground like i I wish there's a better term but people know what you're talking about when you say it (laughs) yeah 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 like people who and and again i will add psychology has helped me here because I think the underlying psychological mechanisms that influence people who want to censor from, I don't know, a left wing, I don't even want to call it left wing because those people were interested in, in economics and class and these new left wing people who are interested in censorship are just like purity of other things. So yeah, yeah, there's an ideological purity. There's a, the, the parallels between hardcore censor, types in Christianity from my youth and what I see now in progressive circles are like, they're way more similar than they are different. Oh yeah, for sure. And so I think that's why it's more interesting to talk about that group. And man, I am so sad that Hitchens isn't alive now to talk about what's going on in the world now. Like I just feel we're, we're so missing out on that voice. And I mean, Douglas Murray is a good, secondary 
but he's just not quite Hitchens. He's the closest we have, I think, but he's just not quite Hitchens on these topics. Yeah, no, that would have been amazing. I mean, Sam Harris is great on, on some of this stuff, but yeah, Hitchens was just on another level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I don't care exactly about religion in terms of like what people believe beyond kind of like influence, I guess. Right? Yeah. And this maybe betrays my I don't even want to call it politics, my political philosophy maybe is that I kind of just want every group to have about as much power as every other group so that yeah. no one can <laughs> dominate and therefore that is actually the best environment for all the ideas to get out there. <laughs> well, I think that's more outrageous to want than wanting God to be real. <laughs> I don't think either will happen. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Of course not. But, um, well, what is it? The Pilgrim's Progress? <laughs> the journey, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or uh, the um, centrist's journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing. Like, I mean, this is a totally different podcast, but about the internet revolution and social media has really rewarded some of the baser human instincts, hey? Some of the more oh, yeah. some of the more tribalistic and ugly sides that religion has also. One of the things I've noticed with David is that you take any social movement or social institution that has the attention of lots of people. And that's exactly where bad actors are going to go because that's where they know that they can get power. So if you, Interesting. Yeah. If you are 19 teens Russia and the, the Bolsheviks take over, communism is going to be quite an appealing thing to spout if you are an authoritarian and you want to take over other people because that's where people's attention is right now. And that's not letting communism or or religion off the hook because i think that there are elements in the ideology or philosophy that allow it to be taken over kind of thing mm -hmm. there aren't enough safeguards i mean this is we're really far afield now but dave and i did an episode on the movie the patriot and one of the things that was really interesting to me coming out of that film and reading a little bit about the american revolution was how much work was put in by a few of the founding fathers hamilton and jefferson but specifically james madison in ensuring that they could still have a country after a revolution because he knew that revolutions were so much of the time of the moment you get swept up in the emotion but then what do you do and then it decays because now the revolutionaries are in charge of things and that wasn't yeah. part of the plan because that doesn't get men's emotions up so the federalist papers and madison talking about how to actually run this country after we have the revolution is i think just as important if not more important than the revolution and right. and whereas if you're an authoritarian who cares i'll just rule with an iron fist kind of thing so i i think that it's no surprise to me that there have been so many bad actors and psychopaths who utilize the social power of christianity let's say for their own means yeah where, where would if you wanted authority over people where would you go <laughs> well you'd go to where people are already ready to be obeying to yeah no it's uh you know one good example have you ever seen the documentary marjo no but i've heard of marjo i've heard of this but explain it a bit so 
it's a perfect example of what you're talking about about bad actors taking over in a, in a space. But Marjo was a child preacher during the tent right. you know, tent preacher revolution. Right, right, right. And you know he became pretty popular and then just disappeared. Well, this documentary follows him when he's an adult and he approaches or gets approached by a documentary to come back as a tent preacher purposely knowing that he's preaching wrong and to show how easy it is mm. to fake yeah. to fake it and make people believe and uh, he talked about how when he was a kid like his parents forced him to practice 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 and do it and it was like it was abuse you know we know right. that now right, right, right. you know forcing him to be this this person he wasn't and so this documentary follows him as he you know slays people in the holy spirit and he convinces people to give up their money and convinces that he's you know uh, all this and he like talks about this is what he's doing and this is who he's impersonating you know doing things like elvis you know he was a big uh showman he's like i you know i tried to be like elvis and mimic some of his his <laughs> right. movement yeah yeah and his things, and stuff. things people already like exactly or things that have worked an entertainment that has worked i mean Right mean, now, this is just called best practices in the entertainment industry. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've boiled it and, down to a to a, a, a something you can learn in a training session. Exactly, and so it's really interesting to watch because um, again, I watched it with my wife who wasn't raised religious, and you know, there's there's these events in it where there's people like crying on the ground and and uh, wailing and speaking in tongues, and it's really um, if you've never like, I remember being a kid at like four or five, my mom passed out on the ground next to me and people praying over her. And I'm just like, I'm hungry. This yeah. is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I nowhere to go. <laughs> but so I've, so I've witnessed all this stuff, but my wife actually left the room because it was so uncomfortable sure. watching yeah. this type of thing. Mm -hmm. And he was making all this happen, purposely fooling people. Yeah. That's how bad actors can get involved. Yep. You know, maybe... You know, some of those mega churches and stuff, you know, I guarantee at least one of them doesn't believe what they're preaching mm -hmm. and is just using it to make money well, and, and stuff. I don't know where it went, but about a decade ago, Daniel Dennett was talking about an organization he was working with, with, with helping <laughs> closeted preachers and not in the closet for their sexual orientation, but in the closet of their belief, right? Like yeah. preachers and pastors who say, I don't believe this anymore and I don't know what else there is for me to do in my life. So I have to keep yeah. doing it. So that's like a, a more tragic version of the bad actor as opposed to like the, <laughs> the well, yeah, and it is the like, sad person you know, who's lost their faith. I mean, excommunication isn't really a thing than most in, in, you know, Protestant church at least. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you still leave, like, cause I remember when I came out as an atheist, I probably lost like 70, 80% of my friends, mm. you know, not all at once. You know, slowly, I remember going out for coffee with a two, few of them, and they, like, try and convince me, and I was just, you know, no, 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 and then that was the last time I ever talked with them. And right. They're moving off Facebook and stuff like that, and it, so it's like, you know, if you are religious and you are questioning, like I said at the beginning, it permeates everything. Yeah. And you, as a religious person, don't want to be associated with the evil atheists or, you know, people who don't believe like you. And so you come to that realization is like, well, my friends won't want to be associated with me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's scary to lose all your connections, your friends, your, 
you know, possibly your your uh, significant other, even. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of like tragedy of not acknowledging, like I said, I don't think Peterson does, like the the literalness of this for so many people, and and the way it inf- it seeps into every element of life, not just belief. Yeah, um, exactly. That that's how it can cash out in in tragedy in in those broken mm-hmm. relationships or lost relationships over um you know from your and I perspective imagine breaking up with someone or refusing to be someone's friend if they don't have the same opinion as you do about which is the best Harry Potter book yeah right like i like chamber of secrets well i like half blood prince we're incompatible when you think about religion the way you and i do that's how it seems right like it's it's on par intellectually with that kind of disagreement and then that yeah. sort of overreaction. Yeah, and it's it's sad because I think that's another reason why I didn't I stopped trying to convince you know my family to leave it because like I know that you know if I did and they they left it's like they're gonna lose all their friends. Yeah. You know, can I be responsible? Should I be responsible for that? No. I mean, I will still like if if they ask or bring it up, like I'll go full on. You know, we'll debate. You bet. But sure. I won't start it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, I like that. Um, I'm not here to start any arguments, but I won't shy away from them either. Exactly. <laughs> right? Maybe more hard-nosed hitch and take. I'm not here to offend anyone, but I also don't care if I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good quote. I that one. <laughs> yeah. And it's especially interesting because, I'm, you know, in November I'll have a kid and yeah. it'll be how they're raised and, you know, my, their grandma's. Mm-hmm. will be religious his uncle or her uncle will be religious you know and it's like i know that they'll want to and it's it'll be trying to walk that line of letting them understand the cultural significance of religion and how it impacts our world and having i want i want them to have a base understanding of it oh, for sure and walking the line of it's not real yeah. And so that'll be an interesting something I've obviously never done before. Well, raising a human. Far but... be it for me to give anyone parenting advice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would have been devastated if the Bible stories were presented to me in the same way that like Narnia was or yeah. other story like when you're younger like Dr. Seuss type stories or when you're a little older, like Redwall. I don't know if you ever read any of the Redwall yeah. books, right? Like, yeah. I, at no point do I think Redwall is literally true, but yeah. you still get the lessons and the character studies and the interesting descriptions. Like, you just, you still learn so much from those books, even though they're fiction. Exactly. You're not being read it by your, <laughs> your aunt or uncle who is like, well, this actually happened. Yeah. And this is this is true because uh, you know no one's no one's reading you Redwall and then saying well this actually happened. Cole, that would be crazy. <laughs> it would be crazy. That would be insane. Talking mice, fighting with swords. <laughs> so I have one more question for you, and I was going to ask this anyway, but I think it's even more pertinent because you are going to be having a child, and that obviously steps you into a brand new realm of life where maybe you have to think a little bit more specifically about these things. Although my intuition would be you already think about these things so one of the most common and sometimes fair sometimes not fair criticism of people like you and me is like okay well you are 
taking away meaning from people or taking away meaning from the world, but what are you adding, right? And in strictly mm -hmm. intellectual terms, like atheism is just not theism. I don't believe in theism. It's not, it's in no way an assertion of any other sort of philosophy or belief system, right? So like, perhaps more rarely, you can be an atheistic conservative, right? Like I think Heather McDonald is a good example of that in the world right now. She's a writer and an American writer who's doesn't believe in God at all, but she's a pretty famous mainstream conservative writer. You could be any sort of, I mean, you could easily be a communist and an atheist, right? Like there's no necessary connection. So those are all terms. So like, because part of what I'm trying to do on the liberal soul, and again, any listener, right of center, not capital L liberal partisan, but small L liberal uh, from the enlightenment style. <laughs> In a world without God, let's say, what brings meaning to your life? See that was that was always the question people bring up. It's like, well, if you don't have God, you don't your life doesn't have meaning. Yeah, fair. I will just note along the way. I know you have an answer, and I know I have an answer. So I'm not like asking it as a gotcha, right? Like I yeah. just want to know oh, what it sure. is. Yeah, and uh, it actually took me a long time to formulate because it is a good question. Because up until that point, that was what all my meaning, my whole meaning in life was to convert people to my religion and go to heaven so I could be in heaven. You know, and that, was, do that what was it. Exactly. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? And it was like, not only, not only did the fear, it take a long time to get rid of the fear that I was going to hell. That, those hooks sink into you deep. So you're trying to get over that fear of going to hell and everything you do with these after that. But it was, yeah, trying to find what is the meaning of life. And it is tough to to really pinpoint, but I think it kind of came down to when I figured out it's like life can have whatever meaning you give it. At that point, I was taking my meaning in life from religion, but I wasn't deciding what meaning I wanted to. I wasn't happy, you know, living in that in that meaning of life. And so, you know, my meaning in life now is to make the world a better place than when I left it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm involved in politics to try and, you know, make tiny, tiny changes to make things a little bit better. You know, it's to be to be happy. And what is what is happiness? You know, it is what I make of it. You know, I, I'm happy with my hobbies. I'm happy with my with my family. I'm happy, you know, exploring new places, new opportunities, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be anything bigger than that. And I think life itself became more precious to me as well. Because before it's like, you know, this is just a blink in the eye. Your life is just a blink in the eye. The real thing is eternity. And that's all that matters. You know, that was preached over and over and over and over again. And life became so much more precious when I realized this is all I get. Right. There is nothing after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these 80 to 100 years, if I'm lucky, you know, are all I'll get. And I'm not going to waste my life chasing something after life. And I think that gave my life a lot more meaning. I became a lot more happier when I realized, like, every day matters. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's you should enjoy it and cherish it. And that's kind of when things became a lot better for me when I realized that. Yeah, I like how you phrase that because it reminded me of the way I put it, too, is I think the point of life is to be a good ancestor is to be a good steward of the time that we have here to pass on a world that is 
and an experience to the next generation of people who come after us in a way that we've inherited so much goodness from our ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a a very non cosmic or a non metaphysical <laughs> cosmic duty. I feel <laughs> in yeah. gratitude, right? The way I put it, I, I like to give it like these a nice little ascending list is that the things that give my life meaning are humor and then culture and then friendship. <laughs> Those are like the three big things that give my life meaning. And I would say probably the fourth one that I don't know, and you're going to experience is being a parent. I imagine having a kid gives life. I mean, I have a friend here who has a one and a half year old and in a sense, she doesn't even have time to think about the meaning of her life because yeah. she's just so busy keeping this little human alive and yeah. like having fun with it and all that kind of stuff. But like, yeah, like I love laughing and laughing at myself and like thinking of the silly things that I do that I also notice in other people. And I think there's um there's a, a line in Nietzsche's work where he says you can't analyze something well until you've well and truly laughed at it. So <laughs> I I you know it's like okay yes humans are this primate species that you know fucks and shits and you can imagine anyone the most important person Obama he takes a dump too you know it's like okay we <laughs> laugh at ourselves but now we can also do the I think it's a Shakespearean quote where it's like, what a creature is man, you know, what yeah. things he is capable of and she is capable of. And culture for me is so regnant with all of that stuff. Like, I'm, I love music. I love playing guitar. I love just the kind of like rapturousness of a good song and getting lost in it. But I love movies. I love books. I have a whole other podcast on movies and books and just like learning about literature and philosophy and all that kind of stuff and then just the shenanigans you can get up to with your friends like there's something kind of i i understand i, I think i understand the impulse where it comes from but there's something kind of wrong-headed about the question well what gives your life meaning without god it's like well all the mm -hmm. things that give it life meaning now <laughs> yeah <laughs> right like uh all the things that you can indulge in now that you would do whether there is a god or isn't and so yeah. But when you but when they're asking you that question, they do believe it's a got you, because yeah. from for a lot of them and for myself as well, like it didn't nothing else mattered. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else was a was a side story. Yep. Was a you know, it was just you know something else that just happened. But everything else, everything was guiding towards this one thing, getting to heaven. Well. And, in a sense, how much easier is life when that's what it is? Oh, right? so much simpler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you know, and, until you get too nitty gritty into the rules and you have a church split and then, you know, well, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I think like that exact point is, I think, would be my guess. I mean, I'm not an expert, but that's my guess of the evolutionary adaptive fitness of that kind of belief system, because simplifying life down can make it a little easier to survive in maybe i don't know yeah. <laughs> probably i don't know do you have any other thoughts or questions anything else that's on your mind i mean i guess there's one thing to maybe say to your listeners is like you know if you're you know trying to convince someone out of this you have to realize that you can't logically convince someone out of a position they haven't logically been convinced into right you know it's it is a it's, it's an emotional thing it's a 
is an all-encompassing part of their life. And, you know, I think we, you know, need a different viewpoint on it from from outside religion. Like, right. it is something to, you know, it's it's a culture. It's the same as we respect another culture. You know, it's just a subculture of any civilization. And it's, for the most part, they're not harmless. Or they're, they're harmless, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go do whatever they want. And it's fine, but you know, you're not, you're not probably, you're probably never going to convince someone out of it. Yeah. So you know, just learn to accept them as they are, and I think it's that's kind of the best that we can hope for. And uh, make like a good Christian and love them anyway, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, hate the non-belief, not the non-believer, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Well, I always I always found the true treasure in debate was the the audience and the educational and pedagogical element of being able to be a third party and witness a debate because then unless you're like really invested, your ego's not on the line in the same way and so you can be a little bit more receptive hopefully to the points. And that's what it was for me. Like if I had been the person having to argue against Hitchens in those debates, A, I would have been creamed because he's the greatest (laughs) of all time. But B, also, I would have felt my back up against the wall a little bit more in a naturally human sense because it's my ego on the line. And to be able to have a Buddha-like transcendence of the ego when that's what's quote-unquote on trial is hard to do, right? So I do, I think the... I don't know, like strategically, I would probably be more likely to get into an argument with an audience than I would be without one. And maybe that's just my showmanship, center of attention cravingness. I don't know. But Well, I've had that thought too. It's like, you know, you're never going to change a person's mind on social media or Facebook or stuff right, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so I know that when I'm, you know, if I ever get in a Facebook debate, I know that the person I'm debating is never going to change their mind. I know that. But I know there's lots of people reading it, and, you know, it might just spark something. Right. You know, there might be a tight, one tiny question that they might ask. They might look a little bit deeper. And that's that's all I'm, you know, when I do, when I debate on Facebook, that's what I'm hoping. is this one person is like, wait a second, that actually makes a little bit of sense. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all. That's all I'm hoping for, because that's all we can hope for. <laughs> well... I've often said that the most profound of human statements is actually seems like the most innocuous one. But I think the most profound thing a human ever said was, hey, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cole, for your time on a Saturday. And um, yeah, I don't know exactly how this podcast is going to be or grow, but I just, it's kind of like, um, because I'm focused on things like thinking and the arts and culture, it's kind of like, I know it when I see it, you know? Yeah. I, I know a good conversation when I see it. And yeah, this is Yeah. And these, these type of conversations are rare because there's not a lot of people who grew up super religious. Yeah. That left. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think mean, you know, that one other person in economic terms, like you and I are the target market for, the new atheists, right? Like we were, yeah. we were young people in our early twenties when they rose to prominence in the culture, and uh, that's like the age you're asking these kind of questions and thinking about these kind of things, right? Yeah. Is there anywhere on the internet people can find you if they want to learn more about Cole? No, no. I just 
try and stay off that as little as possible. Oh, that's, so <laughs> that's uh, good for your sanity, I imagine. It is. I used to have a bigger social media presence, but it's just not worth it in these witch hunting cancel culture times. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually, I, I feel the same. I feel like, do you ever see the movie Surrogates? Bruce Willis and Rod yes. Mitchell movie? Yeah, long, I can't. Well, okay, listeners, spoilers for the movie Surrogates. So if you don't want it spoiled. Oh, yeah, I just Google it. I have seen this, yeah. All the people have kind of like body suits. I, I guess they're like electrical, but they're like younger, prettier, more highlighted versions of themselves, which there's an obvious parallel there to social media where you can use filters or whatever, right? Show the highlights mm -hmm. of your life. And then the climax of the movie is the main character being able to basically kill all the people who are in the surrogates, but he only does the half measure. The, the twist of the movie is that he doesn't go the full measure of killing everyone. What he actually does is just turn off all the surrogates. So all of the people are still alive. They just don't have any surrogates yet left to use. And so the end of the movie is all the older, disheveled, not so great looking people stumbling out of their houses because they haven't been outside in years or something, right? Because yeah. the surrogates are dead. And I kind of feel like the parallel with social media is so great is like, Man, if I could have a button to just cancel all social media forever, I would be so tempted to press it. Oh, I'd, I'd press it right now. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate your time, Cole. Thanks so much. And I'm sure you'll be a recurring guest on this because this was a lot of fun. Sounds good. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it.